and welcome to Coastal Crimes, the podcast about the dark side of your favorite tropical vacation spots. I'm Jen, your host, and this week I'm bringing you a case based out of Florida. Now, since there are so many different areas of Florida that I consider vacation spots, um, this one is based out of Tallahassee, and so I'm going to focus our facts on Tallahassee, Florida. Basking in a warm, sunny climate, Tallahassee has just what millions of Americans are looking for. Summers are long, warm, and relaxing, with golf available 12 months a year. Tired of shoveling snow and mushing through slush in those gray, dreary, bone-chilling months? Here, winter is refreshingly cool, yet on many sunny January afternoons, you'll be comfortable strolling around outdoors in shorts and a t-shirt, and flowers bloom every February. It has snowed in Tallahassee just seven times in our history. And Tallahassee has Florida's most educated population. About half the residents have a bachelor's degree or higher. Tallahassee ranks within the top third of communities where people socialize more frequently than average. A big part of this is getting involved in local charitable organizations, including the Christmas Connection, Toys for Tots, and Reading Pals, just to name a few. The name Tallahassee comes from a Muscogean Indian word, which means old fields or old towns. Tallahassee is the hilliest spot in Florida. It is known for its rolling red hills, and its highest peak is approximately 200 feet above sea level. Gulf beaches are less than an hour away, yet Tallahassee lies outside of a high-priced coastal wind zone, where homeowners insurance can be very expensive. Although Tallahassee has a rather small population, it has over 24 art galleries and 15 museums, which shows how committed the city is to arts and culture. The Tallahassee Automobile Museum is home to Abraham Lincoln's horse-drawn hearse, as well as the Batmobiles from Batman Forever and Batman Returns. And last, Tallahassee Memorial Hospital has the region's most advanced neurosurgery program, the region's only structural heart program, the only level two trauma center in the region, the highest destination for heart attack care, and the most powerful cancer center program in the Big Bend. So if you're sick in Florida, might want to travel to Tallahassee. Although in the case I'm covering today, a hospital wouldn't have done much good. Okay. Today, I'm going to talk to you about the disappearance of Jerry Michael Williams. Born Jerry Michael Williams, he was often known as Michael or Mike. He grew up in Bradfordville, north of Tallahassee, and he was the son of a Greyhound bus driver and a daycare provider who raised him and his older brother Nick in a double-wide trailer. Instead of building a house, the family saved its money so both boys, who helped by working nights at supermarkets, could attend North Florida Christian High School. Since his family came from such humble beginnings, he really knew the importance of money and values, so he always worked hard in school. Mike excelled, serving as student council president, playing football, and being active in the key club. At the age of 15, he began duck hunting as a hobby, and also came to know fellow student Denise Morrell. After North Florida Christian, he attended Florida State University, where he majored in political science and urban planning. Even before graduation, he was hired by Ketchum Appraisal Group as a property appraiser. He distinguished himself as the hardworking man I ever saw, according to the company's owner. In 1994, he married his high school sweetheart, Denise, and finally started to live his dream life. According to his mother, Mike was making about $200,000 annually by the time of his disappearance. 
He and Denise had bought a home in a small upscale subdivision on the east side of the city. He was a good man who provided for his family, and when his daughter was born in 1999, he stepped up to be a great father as well. In 1999, Mike's only child, Ansley, a daughter, was born. His co-workers said he was as devoted to her as he was to his work. The following year, his father died. Midway through the year, the couple bought a $1 million life insurance policy on him through a guy named Brian Winchester, a childhood acquaintance of Denise, who had also become best friends with Mike. Later that year, Mike told his mother, whom he had been consoling, that he would have liked to have $50,000 just to take the next year off. Two days before his disappearance, Mike and Denise told his mother, as well as his brother Nick, that they were planning to have another child soon. In 2001, she said, they were planning to go on a cruise in Hawaii that spring. Later in the year, he expected to travel to Jamaica for work as well. But on December 16, 2000, bright and early in the morning, Mike left his home in Tallahassee, Florida, with his boat in tow to go duck hunting at Lake Seminole. The lake is a large reservoir approximately 50 miles west-northwest of Tallahassee along the Florida-Georgia state line, where three other streams merge to form the Apalachicola, Apalachicola River. The couple had plans to celebrate their sixth wedding anniversary that night in Apalachicola, but Mike never came back from his hunting trip. At noon, Denise called her father to tell him that Mike had not returned. When Brian Winchester and his father found out about Mike's disappearance, they both drove to the areas of the lake where they knew Mike frequently went duck hunting. They found his 1994 Ford Bronco near a remote boat launch in Jackson County on the Florida side. After investigators with the Florida Fish and Wildlife Conservation Commission were called, a search began, but soon had to be called off because a huge storm blew in. The initial search investigation was handled by the FFWCC. Since it had been reported to them as a missing hunter, the agency handled the case that way, focusing on search and rescue or recovery. We didn't have a whole lot to go on, except there was an empty boat and the guy didn't show up, one of the agency's officers recalled later after his retirement. There was nothing there that we had from the scene that suggested foul play at all. Deputies with the Jackson County Sheriff's Office were present, but primarily worked in a support capacity. Searchers focused on the 10 acres of the lake surrounding the cove where Mike's truck was parked. His boat was soon found roughly 225 feet from the ramp by a helicopter pilot, who initially assumed it was a boat being used in the search. After retrieving the boat, investigators found Mike's shotgun still in its case, but no sign of Mike himself. The cove is locally believed to have been an orchard before the Chattahoochee and Flint Rivers and Spring Creek were dammed to create the lake. It took its name, Stump Field, from the any remaining stumps that protruded above and below the water level, requiring careful handling of any powerboat in the area. Searchers thus assumed that Mike had hit a stump with his boat, fallen out, sunk into water 8 to 12 feet deep when his waders filled, and then drowned when he was unable to get himself out. Had Mike drowned, his body would have been expected to eventually float to the surface, making it easier to discover. Investigators assured the Williams family that his body would surface, like other drowning victims, within three to seven days, or perhaps slightly longer due to the cold front that had moved in after the first night's storm. But no body was found. 
10 days into the search, a camouflage pattern hunting hat was found, but it could not be connected to Mike. Efforts continued until the search was called off in early February. It has since been suggested that the search might have continued had Denise Williams indicated an interest in doing so. At that time, the case was still considered open. Nothing in investigative or search and rescue efforts has produced any definitive evidence of a boating accident or a fatality as of this date, read the final report issued in late February 2001. Now, I'm not sure if Denise told them to stop searching or if she just didn't push it hard enough. From the reports that I've read, she was grieving and she was really torn up about his disappearance, but I don't think she just really pushed any more than what like the investigators were willing to do. Now, if Mike had drowned after accidentally falling out of his boat, his body would be the only one from 80 other known deaths in the lake never to have been found. The head of a private search firm that helped official efforts near the end of the search offered a possible explanation. With the wildlife around, I would guess that the alligators have dismembered and have stored the remains in a location that we would not be able to find, he wrote in a report. Early searchers had reported seeing many of them, and some of the officials were willing to accept the possibility. Everyone knows this lake is full of alligators, said the FFWCC's David Arnett. You look for other answers. Why hasn't the body appeared? It was also suggested that perhaps Mike's body had become entangled in the beds of dense hydrilla beneath the lake's surface and then found by the alligators later, with turtles and catfish finishing what they had left behind. Denise Williams, who had avoided a lot of media attention during the search, accepted that her husband had died. She arranged for a memorial service for Mike to be held the day after the search ended. In June, an angler in the Stumpfield area discovered a pair of waders floating in the lake, and divers called to the search area then recovered from the lake bottom a lightweight hunting jacket and a flashlight. In one of the jacket pockets, there was a hunting license with Mike Williams' name and signature. However, there were no teeth marks or any other damage on the waders. None of the recover items showed signs of having been in the water for anything like the period Mike had been missing, and there was no DNA evidence found to link the clothing to him. Nevertheless, a week later, a Leon County judge granted Denise Williams' petition to have Mike declared legally dead on the basis of those recovered items and an assumption that alligators and other water life had consumed his body in its entirety which is super unusual because even if an alligator eats you, you usually are still left with like some bones and stuff. So a lot of this already just isn't making a bunch of sense. The court decision allowed Denise Williams to immediately proceed with claims on her husband's life insurance policies, from which she received $1.5 million. Five years later, she married Brian Winchester, the one who had sold Mike some of the policies a few months before he disappeared. And the couple went on to live in the same house where Denise and Mike had lived. Denise and Brian have mostly declined to discuss the case publicly. So the private search team that came up with the alligator theory had been hired near around the end of the original search by Mike's mother, Cheryl. After it ended and after her son was declared legally dead, which she said in 2008 she would have contested but nobody told her about those proceedings, she was still not convinced that he had drowned in the lake 
and her attempts to bring about a further investigation were unsuccessful. She had stated that she received threats to discourage her, and for the next several years, she investigated on her own when she wasn't operating a daycare at her home. She ran advertisements in local newspapers and put up billboards seeking information. All the investigations that happened after the first search of the case have resulted from her efforts. She believed her son might still be alive. I get criticized a lot for not admitting that Mike's dead, she told the Tallahassee Democrat in 2007. All I know is I can't stop looking for him until I find him. Her efforts had severely strained her relationship with her former daughter-in-law, Denise, and also her relationship with her granddaughter, Ansley. Four years later, in 2004, the Florida Department of Law Enforcement agreed to reopen the case after lobbying by Cheryl Williams and a friend. This agency does not normally have jurisdiction in missing persons cases and cannot get involved in investigations purely on the basis of a citizen's request, although it can offer assistance to local agencies, which it did in this case. In retrospect, many officers agreed with Cheryl that the circumstances surrounding Michael Williams' apparent drowning four years ago were unusual and were strongly at odds with that conclusion. For example, the boat launch where his Bronco was found, which he would presumably have used to put his boat in the lake, was an undeveloped patch of mud. Yet nearby, there was finished concrete launches that he was known to have used in the past. The storm the night after he was reported missing had westerly winds that should have blown the abandoned, unmoored boat across the lake to the Georgia side. When the boat was recovered, its engine was off, but the gas tank was full. According to the manufacturer, if the engine had been running when Mike allegedly fell out of the boat, as the investigators had theorized, it should have stayed on, with the boat running in circles until its fuel was gone. Something is starting to sound fishy here. Investigators also learned that Mike didn't usually hunt alone. Some things looked unusual right off the bat, said the FFWCC's David Arnett, who had initially thought the situation was a typical case involving a missing hunter and a possible boating accident. But then after a couple, three days, and after the weeks went on, those first things that were unusual looked even more out of place. Doubts that Mike had drowned became much more serious when investigators learned that, in fact, alligators do not generally feed during the winter months because of the colder temperatures. And during the search period, daytime temperatures averaged around 55 degrees Fahrenheit, with overnight lows being below freezing. Some nights got as cold as 19 degrees Fahrenheit. And a fire was built in a 55-gallon drum on the shore for the searchers to stay warm. The water, already at 50 to 58 degrees Fahrenheit the day of Mike's disappearance, dropped to 46 degrees and the lake iced out as much as 20 feet from the shore. In those conditions, it is highly unlikely an alligator would have been active, said Matt Oresco, a local herpetologist authorities did consult. All they are doing is maintaining their body temperature. 58 degrees is too cold for an alligator to be interested in food at all. So there you go. Alligator theory debunked. And even if an alligator had defied all known gator behavior and eaten Mike's body, as another investigator, Ronnie Austin, then with the state's attorney's office, put it, it would likely have left something behind. Mike was 5 feet 10 inches and 170 pounds. 
Oresco considers any theory that attributes the missing body to alligators and any other aquatic animals as a stretch. It would be very, very unusual to have the complete disappearance of a full-grown man. The waders, discovered almost six months after Mike's disappearance, further undermines the alligator theory. While the diver who retrieved them reported that they were in an area of disturbed weeds with an alligator excrement nearby, consistent with the original belief that Mike had drowned while wearing them, he did admit that it was anyone's guess as to whether they had been later planted in that spot. These waders, we don't know where they came from, Austin said. Investigators' suspicions were further raised by the waders' condition, undamaged, no tooth marks, and lacking any of the residues that would be expected to accumulate on an object submerged in the lake for as long as the waders had supposedly been. Annette filtered the water in them after they were recovered and did not find any human remains. The hunting jacket and flashlight were likewise in much better condition than expected, and the flashlight even worked when they turned it on. So apart from the condition of the waders was also the question of why Mike would have been wearing them when he supposedly fell out of the boat. According to a friend who hunted with him frequently, including one week before his disappearance, Mike took safety very seriously, keeping all of his guns at work away from his daughter and among other precautions. On the water, he never put his waders on until he had reached the point where he planned to get out and start hunting following a common safety procedure in order to avoid the type of accident from which he was later believed to have died. As much as he preached that to me, his friend said, why would he be wearing his waders while driving the boat? My gut feeling is Mike did not die in Lake Seminole, Austin said in 2006, after leaving the state's attorney's office for the FDLE. He added that the belief was shared by all the investigators at that point. I would say this is a suspicious missing person. However, the new investigation was made extremely difficult by the deficiencies of the original search when criminal activity had not been considered. They didn't protect the crime scene at all, recalled a Williams family friend with law enforcement experience who attended to the drum fire during the search. They botched it. By the time investigators began to realize that they should have asked some more questions, their opportunity was gone. Mike's Bronco and the boat had been returned to his family and friends. The footsteps of the many volunteers and searchers all over the lakeshore had made it impossible to collect any evidence from that area, and the items later recovered from the lake had not been retained. Without any of that evidence or Mike's body, it was impossible for police to make a case. We're at a brick wall, pounding our heads against it, said Austin. Derek Wester, an investigator with the Jackson County Sheriff's Office, agreed that they were trying to make up for not having considered the possibility that things might not have been what they seemed in 2000. His office did keep the case open and had some persons of interest, although he did not identify them at the time. Fast forward another three years, in 2007, the FDLE closed its case, convinced that the alligator theory was wrong, but without any leads or evidence that could allow it to further investigate. And by 2006, its cold case investigators were no longer returning Cheryl Williams' phone calls. That's Mike's mom. She continued to do what she could to publicize the case, taking out ads in the Tallahassee Democrat. 
A possible new lead emerged in October 2007 when Michael Williams' older brother found a photograph and the serial number of a 22 caliber Ruger, Ruger pistol that had once belonged to their father. Michael had inherited it after his father's death, and after Michael was declared legally dead, it was the only one of his firearms that Denise Williams had not returned to her former in-laws. After Jackson County Sheriff's investigator Wester asked the Bureau, the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms to look for it, agents visited Denise and Brian Winchester, who are now married in their house, the same one that she had lived in with Michael, to interview them. Several days later, their attorney delivered the gun to the FDLE. It was sent to a state forensics laboratory for DNA testing. The results have not been reported. On the anniversary of Mike's disappearance that year, the Winchesters made one of their few public statements on the case. For seven years, we have prayed and hoped to find out with certainty what happened to Mike, Brian said in an email to the Democrat, and nobody wants Mike found more than we do. Rumors were circulating around Tallahassee that a grand jury had been hearing evidence and would soon hand down indictments. In 2008, the Florida Department of Financial Services Division of Insurance Fraud, in conjunction with the FDLE, began investigating the case from that angle. Normally, under Florida law, the statute of limitations on that crime, insurance fraud, is five years, meaning it would have expired in 2005. But it can be extended by three years under certain circumstances. The circumstances surrounding this case raise many serious and troubling questions, said DIF's lead attorney, Mark Schlein. Perry, the FFWCC officer who had been heavily involved in the original search, added at that time that if he or any other person investigating had known that there was a large life insurance policy on Mike and who the beneficiary was, that search might have been handled differently. It was noted that Denise Williams' court petition to have her husband declared legally dead mentioned only the Kansas City Life Insurance Company policies Winchester had sold him, omitting policies through other companies that Michael Williams had obtained through other sources. However, Brian Jones, an expert in insurance law at Florida State University, told the Democrat that any fraud case would have to rest on more than just those facts already known to have aroused investigative interest. The mere fact that they can't locate the body isn't necessarily something the insurance industry would care about, he said. But if Michael Williams was to be proven dead and the beneficiary were to have shown to have been involved, or if he was still alive, as his mother and many residents of Jackson County believed possible, then an insurance company would strongly consider pursuing a case. By the eighth anniversary of Mike's disappearance, however, the DIF had closed the case. Our job was extremely difficult, and we were simply unable to develop enough evidence to proceed with the investigation, Schlein said. He added that if new information were received, the investigation could be reopened. We have suspicions, but what we need is evidence. Another possible lead that year proved fruitless as well. Carrie Cox, a self-described psychic and certified forensic psychological profiler from Kentucky, reviewing the case, had identified a possible location of Mike's body. She gave investigators the coordinates of a location in Wakula County near another boat launch. Cadaver dogs were brought to the area and sniffed it out, but found nothing. 
Cox concluded that we are moving in the right direction. I think something is there. FDLE officials said in 2011 that Cox had not found anything requiring further investigation. Despite the failure of a third investigation to discern the fate of her son, Cheryl Williams persisted. Her efforts led to the Investigation Discovery Cable Channel doing a segment on Michael's disappearance and the later investigations in late 2011. We don't know what the smoking gun is, but we hope someone will find it, she said. By then, she had become disillusioned with the FDLE, believing that it was either incompetent or uninterested in resolving the case. In particular, she came to believe the investigation was hampered by the involvement of agent Mike Phillips, a friend of both her son and his then-wife, Denise. Phillips had told her early on in the search that Michael had probably been eaten by alligators, so she had assumed he had been involved in the investigation at that point. He said later he never was and was merely trying to comfort her. FDLE said his involvement was limited to asking his superiors if the agency could help with the search. It did not see a need to formally investigate his role. Then, starting on New Year's Day in 2012, Cheryl began writing one letter a day to Governor Rick Scott, asking him to either have another agency besides the FDLE investigate or to appoint a special prosecutor to do so. After she had written over 200 letters without even an acknowledgement that they had been received, she began inquiring personally as to why. It turned out that the governor's office had forwarded them, unopened, to FDLE's headquarters, where they were placed in the case file. She was outraged. They could not have hurt me more if they had punched me in the face. Also in 2012, Denise and Brian Winchester separated, reportedly due to his sex addiction. She then filed for divorce in 2015. Brian opposed it initially and had to be ordered to comply. As part of that order, he was to provide an appraisal of the couple's house, due early in August 2016. Denise told Leon County Sheriff's Office investigators that on August 5th, the day when the appraisal had to be filed with the court, she left her home to drive to her job at Florida State University. While she was talking on her phone to her sister, she saw someone climb over the back seat of her car. It was Brian. He took her phone away and began yelling directions at her. She did not comply until he showed her a gun. She said later that he claimed this was necessary since she was not taking his calls and blocking his text messages. Instead of going where he wanted her to, she pulled into a CVS drugstore parking lot close to the door. Brian told her that he was planning to kill himself with the gun. He did not want the divorce and felt he had nothing to live for if it went through. He assured her he did not want to kill her. She was able to calm him down and took him back to where he had parked his own truck at a nearby park. Before he went to it, he took a tan sheet, a different colored plastic sheet, a spray bottle of bleach, and a tool from Denise's car. So my question is, if he said he wasn't planning on killing her, why is all of that stuff in the trunk of Denise's car? After she left, Brian pulled up to her and apologized for his actions. Despite her promise to him not to tell the police about the incident, she drove straight to them afterwards. But this is disputed a little. After watching the TV episodes about this case on ID, it is also said that she confided in a close friend whose husband was a police officer, and then they convinced her to file a report against Brian. 
According to a friend of Brian's, later interviewed by police, he had been increasingly concerned that as a result of the divorce, Denise would tell the police what she knew about this guy who died 10 or 12 or 15 years ago. She had not answered his many phone calls, so he came up with his plan to wait in her car and hold her at gunpoint. Brian was arrested and charged with kidnapping, domestic assault, and armed burglary, with two of the charges being felonies. Denise requested protection orders, saying she feared for her life and her daughter's life. After a hearing the next week at which she said she could neither eat or sleep since the incident, the court decided to hold Brian without bond. Cheryl Williams expressed hope that this development could lead to the resolution of her son's disappearance. Brian's not going to let Denise run around alone with all that money, she told the New York Daily News. I'm praying he doesn't commit suicide. I'm praying he'll tell us what actually happened. She added that she is alone among her family and holding out hope that her son is still alive. Two years later, in December 2017, Winchester was sentenced to 20 years in prison for the kidnapping, with credit for 502 days time served to be followed by 15 years probation. His attorney told the court that he was suicidal that day due to not only the divorce, but also his mother's recent terminal cancer diagnosis and the decision by his teenage son from his first marriage to move in with his mother and argued for the 10-year mandatory minimum. Prosecutors countered that Winchester's actions that day indicated he was planning a murder-suicide that was only averted by Denise's quick thinking and asked the court for the 45-year maximum. Brian Winchester is now imprisoned in the Wakula Correctional Institution. No mention was made of the Mike Williams case at Brian Winchester's sentencing, although state attorney Jack Campbell told the media that he hoped the case against Winchester would help authorities solve that disappearance. Later, it was reported that he had reached an agreement with prosecutors before the sentencing that they would neither seek a life sentence on the kidnapping charge nor introduce certain evidence at the hearing. Would that agreement required of Winchester, if anything, beyond his guilty plea, has not been disclosed? On one hand, authorities finally had an answer about what happened to Mike. On the other hand, their star witness was the admitted trigger man. The next day, at a news conference, Mark Perez, the FDLE's special agent in charge, announced to assembled reporters that Mike's body had been found and it had been determined he was the victim of a homicide. However, they declined to release any details of how he had been killed, who might be a suspect or person of interest, or where the body had been found, saying they were withholding that information since only the perpetrators would be expected to know it. Subsequently, the Florida Department of Law Enforcement revealed they had found Mike Williams' remains at the end of Dead End Gardner Road in northern Leon County, five miles from where he grew up. They were confirmed as his following a match to his mother's DNA. No other details were provided at that time. After Denise Williams was arrested, the FDLE disclosed that they had received information on where the body was in early October 2017. County Public Works employees brought in backhoes for what they were told was a training exercise. And after five 16-hour days of digging nine-foot deep holes in the mud at that corner of the lake, all the while holding back the lake waters by dams and pumps amid the constant presence of eels and water moccasins, the FDLE was ready to hire a private contractor to finish the job.
On October 18th, the team of search dogs and officers finally found Mike Williams' remains in the piles of dirt stacked on plywood sheets. An FDLE source told the Tallahassee Democrat that 98% of his bones were recovered, all very well preserved, as was some of the clothing he had been wearing, such as winter gloves and booties. Two DNA tests matched the remains to his mother's sample. Then finally, 18 years after Mike's disappearance, on May 8th, Denise Williams was arrested at Florida State as she left work to celebrate her daughter's 19th birthday, minutes after a grand jury has had indicted her on charges of first-degree murder, conspiracy to commit first-degree murder, and accessory after the fact. Prosecutors continued to keep details of the crime to themselves, saying they would share them in court when the time came. They did not say that they would seek to have her denied bail. Denise's attorney declined to comment at that time, saying he had not had time to review the case. Pretty typical. Brian Winchester's attorney said his client would take the stand at trial if legally compelled to do so. However, the attorney did not think Brian would be charged in the case as well. Well, Dav, because he made that deal earlier. Without that deal, I don't think any of this probably would have ever happened. Then two FDLE officers went to Cheryl Williams' house immediately following the indictment to inform her. She did not speak to the media at that time about how she reacted to the news. The three-page indictment was released two days later. It revealed that prosecutors believed Denise allegedly began conspiring with Brian Winchester in March 2000 nine months before her first husband disappeared. Winchester is alleged to have killed Michael with a gun. The accessory charge suggested that sometime between August 2014 and the day Winchester was sentenced, Denise had allegedly helped Winchester avoid prosecution or arrest for the crime. Ethan Way, Denise's lawyer, said his client was innocent of all the charges. She had absolutely nothing to do with Mike Williams' disappearance and had absolutely nothing to do with any of the crimes that Brian Winchester committed. He found it convenient that the indictment came after Winchester had been imprisoned for several months. On Denise's behalf, Way entered a plea of not guilty. In late June 2018, Denise Williams was ordered held without bond, with her trial date set for September 24th. Audio of Brian Winchester's interview with the FDLE was played in court. In it, Brian confessed to pulling the trigger but claims the killing was Denise's idea. Her defense argued that the tape should not have been admitted as evidence since Brian was not charged with anything despite his admission. The prosecution said it simply asked him to tell the truth about what happened. Denise went on to trial in December. The state's star witness was Brian Winchester, who testified at length about how he and Denise had never really ended their high school relationship, even after they both married other people. Kathy Thomas, Winchester's first wife, told the jury that she had suspected the two of having an affair in the late 1990s when they frequently double-dated with Mike and Denise. Brian said in his confession, a tape of which was played for the jury, that the affair had started in 1997 and just snowballed. After discreetly rekindling their relationship, the two began to consider killing Mike so that way they could marry, as Denise's family frowned on divorce for religious reasons. Denise suggested staging a boating accident on the Gulf of Mexico, where they could throw both Mike and Kathy Thomas overboard. But Brian did not want to kill his children's mother. 
After rejecting plans for a murder at Mike's office meant to look like a robbery, Winchester hit on the idea of an apparent hunting accident after he saved Mike from quicksand when the two were hunting in Arkansas. On the day Mike disappeared, Winchester said, he had enticed him to Lake Seminole. Out on the water, he had gotten Mike to put the waders on, then pushed him out of the boat, thinking he would be unable to resurface and would drown. But instead, Mike managed to get to a tree stump, so Winchester fired a single shotgun blast to his face. Since Mike's death could no longer be passed off as a boating accident, Winchester buried his body where it was later found, then cleaned out his truck and went to a family Christmas party, where he learned that a search for Mike was underway. He and Denise took it slow after Mike's accident, both to let the insurance money earn further interest and to allay any suspicion. Also, Mike's boss at the time continued to pay his salary to Denise for at least six months after his disappearance. The kidnapping that had led to his present imprisonment, he explained, was his reaction to fear that Denise would reveal the truth about what had happened to her first husband now that she and Brian were divorcing. Prosecutors also played a taped phone conversation in which Kathy Thomas, Brian Winchester's ex-wife, who was working with police at the time, had told Denise she knew the truth about the crime. Each time she brought it up, Denise attempted to change the subject, but at one point she asked, what do you know? Assistant State Attorney John Fuchs said this evasiveness, as well as Denise's dispassionate response when Winchester told her how he had killed Mike, demonstrated how cold-bloodedly she had planned and executed the crime. Brian was crying and very emotional on the stand, and Denise was the only one in the room who just had no expression on her face. Kind of like a zombie. Denise's lawyer, Way argued in response that there was no physical evidence linking Denise to the crime and that it had been entirely Winchester's idea. He expressed incredulity that Winchester was not on trial despite having admitted to committing the crime himself. After four days of testimony, the jury took eight hours to convict Denise of all the charges. Way said his client would appeal the conviction. In February 2019, Denise was sentenced to life in prison. Finally, the end of what the lead prosecutor called 21 years of sex, lies, and deceit. She did not speak or offer any argument on her behalf. The only person to address the court besides the lawyers was Cheryl Williams, who said that justice had finally been served and that Denise had taken not only her son, but also her granddaughter from her. Cheryl never believed the alligator story about her son and continued to push authorities and journalists for years to get help finding out what really happened to Mike. If it wasn't for her, what actually happened to Mike would probably have never come to the surface. In the process, Denise and Brian withheld her grandchild, Ansley, from Cheryl for pursuing justice in his case. Five months later, Mike and Denise's daughter, Ansley, was awarded all assets of her late father's estate and insurance monies due to Denise after her mother signed them over to her to avoid prosecution on three counts of insurance fraud. As part of the deal, Ansley may not use any of the money on her mother's legal fees. If she did, she would owe the state a $150,000 penalty. So, in this same agreement for Mike's daughter, Denise will not face additional insurance fraud charges or pay restitution to the state. Prosecutors dropped the charges and agreed not to seek financial penalties as part of a settlement agreement 
blessed by Mike's mother and brother. The assets given to Ansley Williams include four pieces of Tallahassee real estate values at about $877,000, including her home on Centennial Oak Circle, purchased by Mike and Denise when she was a baby. Denise is now imprisoned at the Florida Women's Reception Center. What's sad is Denise already destroyed the relationship between Cheryl and Ansley, but Cheryl is still caring for her however and whenever she can. It's a burden lifted, Cheryl said. I brought her daddy home for her and she's financially independent now. That's all I can do for Ansley is love her, and I do love her. Then most recently, in January 2020, Denise Williams appealed her conviction and life sentence. Her attorney argued before the Florida First District Court of Appeals that there was no evidence she was involved in the commission of the murder. In November 2020, the murder conviction was overturned, but the conspiracy to commit murder conviction was upheld, including the 30-year sentence that accompanied it. And that is the case of Jerry Michael Williams. I'd love to hear what you guys think about this one. Do you think that Denise and Brian got fair sentences? Or because of the sentences that they got, do you think they actually got away with murder? You can let me know on my Instagram or Facebook. Talk to you guys next week. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to Coastal Crimes. Check out my website and blog at coastalcrimespod.com. You can also follow me on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, at Coastal Crimes Pod. If you have questions or recommendations to share, please email me at coastalcrimespod at gmail.com. Episodes are available at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play, and basically wherever you get your podcasts. And if you like the show, please rate and review on Apple Podcasts. It's the best way to spread the word. If you'd like to show your support and get a shout out on air, please visit my Patreon page to keep this show going.